Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. Yesterday was the day of Epiphany, and Epiphany is sometimes referred to as the Gentile Christmas. The Gentile Christmas. And it's a huge celebration in other parts of the world. It's marked by the story of the Magi showing up to worship Jesus. And today I wanted to focus on this celebration of Epiphany and the revealing God does to the Magi. Epiphany comes from a Greek word that means to reveal. And the season of Epiphany is about revealing, about God making himself known in various ways. But the revealing of God is often startling, both in its unnerving welcome to outsiders, and also startling in the beauty of his compassion that we now share. I think that we have somehow unknowingly taken the teeth out of the story of the visit of the Magi. They are often referred to as wise men or as kings. And I think in our imaginations, it makes sense that wise men or kings would be present at Jesus' birth or when he's a toddler. Of course, we want dignitaries. Of course, we want the well-educated who can discern the signs of the times present with Jesus. I think it speaks to our desire of who and how we want Jesus to be honored by. But Magi are not wise men. And magi are not kings. Magi, the Greek word magus, is an occult practitioner. They practice things like astrology and divination to try to discern events in the world. <clears throat> and it should be noted that things like astrology and divination were strictly forbidden in the Hebrew scriptures. The Babylonian king in the days of Daniel employed magi to try to figure out his dreams, and they couldn't do it. Even in later stories after this account of Matthew, the term magi brings with it negativity, almost like something you shouldn't call somebody else. In Acts 8, there is a man named Simon. He's a magi, but it's often translated a sorcerer. It's based on that same word. And Simon amazes people with his sorcery. And he even gets the nickname, the great power of God. In Acts 13, we encounter a Jewish false prophet who is also a magi, a magus, a sorcerer. And he was an attendant to the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And this magi, magus, excuse me, kept trying to keep Sergius from the faith. He kept trying to undermine the work of Paul. And Paul looks this sorcerer, this Magus in the eye and calls him a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. And he ends up cursed with blindness for a time. I was trying to think of sort of a functional equivalent for us today. Like if we made new statues for nativity scenes around the country or around the world, it'd have to be something like sorcerers, right? I mean, it would be as shocking, I think, today that if we had like a coven of witches show up saying, hey, we did this seance and it was revealed to us that a man named Jesus was raised from the dead and we've shown up to worship him and learn about him. I imagine that would be incredibly unnerving to us all. 
which is, for one, lack a strong formal connection to political leaders and powers like Magi could have had in those days, but I think you get a little bit of what's going on here. Or another idea is, imagine if a group of shamans showed up. Shamans are often connected to leadership in a tribe and said they'd done various rituals and sacrifices and they discerned that a king was born in Bethlehem and they traveled there to meet him and give him gifts to honor him as king. Or even if a group of Muslims show up saying, we all had these dreams about a man named Jesus. We were told to come here and learn about him. Magi showing up in Jerusalem would have been incredibly unsettling to the city and unsettling to those in power with the message that a new king that they want to worship has been born. And that is, in fact, what Matthew says happened. Herod was disturbed, Matthew writes, and all of Jerusalem with him. And we should probably try to set aside any image of three kings on three camels by themselves traveling along. A group of magi could have been two to ten to who knows how many. And traveling across a country or across a land would have most likely involved a caravan of sorts, a large entourage of, of people and animals. This is a politically upsetting moment for Herod, for them to show up in the capital city. They pose a threat, one as foreigners from the east. They raise questions They don't belong. But it's Magi whom God chooses to lead right to the house of Jesus. He leads them to the land of Judea to start, goes to the capital city of Jerusalem, because, well, that makes sense. A king would be in the capital. And Herod sends them to Bethlehem because of prophecy. But the star, which gives them joy, guides them right to the house where Jesus and Mary were staying. And they bring out expensive and lavish gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts of spices fit for royal courts, and they bow down and they worship this Jesus. This is shocking, really. Imagine again for our nativity scenes, instead of images of, of kingly figures, Magi, sorcerers, a coven of witches, a group of shaman, a group of Muslims who had dreams presenting gifts to Jesus as a toddler. And remember, Jesus is thoroughly Jewish. He shows up in the world according to specific Israelite prophecies. He's from the lineage of the great Jewish king, David, and he shows up as a descendant of Abraham, chosen by God to bless the world. Jesus is deeply and thoroughly Jewish, and yet it's to a Jewish king that God sends the Magi. It's to a Jewish king that the Magi bow down and worship. The revealing of God and revealing himself in the world is something that should always have some level of unsettling us. It challenges our conceptions of who belongs challenges our conceptions of who does not, and it pushes us to open our ears and to open our eyes to see other human beings differently. Those that we might despise, those that we might label as wicked, those we wish to refer to as heathens or pagans, in this story are among the first 
to show up and worship Jesus. And this is before Jesus does anything of notice. No miracles, no powerful words. He's a toddler, right? Probably walking around spitting and sputtering, soiling his diaper. But their worship, shockingly here, is not based on what he's done. It's not based on anything that they get out of this from him in an immediate sense. It's based on who Jesus is. It's based on the revealing of God in their midst. He's the king of the Jews, and they travel to go and honor him. The story of God calling and leading these magi stands as a constant, beautiful disruption, always unsettling our expectations about who is in and who is out, and inviting us to respond with worship. Herod has the opportunity to worship, right? He could have received the word of the Magi with joy, welcomed these foreigners in and trusted that somehow these foreigners were part of God's way of revealing himself in the world. But he doesn't. Instead, Herod acts like Pharaoh does in the story of the Exodus. Pharaoh in the Exodus is confronted with a growing foreign population in his area, and he acts treacherously, deceitfully, and eventually orders the killing of infants. And what does Herod do? Herod acts treacherously, deceitfully, and eventually orders the killing of infants. Herod the Great, the Herod in this story, was a a really horrible person. He seemed to be power-hungry and obsessed with maintaining his own position and honor. And so he was a good friend um, of Mark Antony, but he was oddly enough an enemy of Cleopatra, so them being lovers was kind of an issue. But when they both died, Herod swore allegiance to Octavius, whom we often refer to just as Caesar. Caesar. This is the same Herod that built up the temple in Jerusalem. Didn't rebuild it, but did all these modifications to it and made it one of the most magnificent, large, lavish structures of the ancient Near East. He also built temples to Caesar. And he put the symbol of the eagle, which was an official symbol for Rome in those days, from about 100 BC, he put that symbol of the eagle in the temple And then when some religious disciples tried to remove that Roman symbol, he had them executed. He seemed to have no problem with supporting Roman political violence and ways of maintaining power and establishing the mixing somehow in his view of Roman and Jewish religions in some way or another. At least he tried to, it seems. And remember, Herod is the Jewish king. His group's faith is supposed to be in Yahweh alone and committed to the scripture. But when he felt opposed, he killed members of the Sanhedrin. Killed them. And then replaced them with his own supporters. So that he had his own hand-picked members as part of the Sanhedrin. He thought two of his sons were plotting against him for the throne. He had them both killed. His wife was wrongfully accused of adultery. He had her killed. His brother-in-law, who was popular with the people and a young high priest, had an accidental drowning. Because archaeology found where it seems this pool was, and it's really shallow. It's really shallow. 
He had another son executed, the one that framed the previous two sons. And on his deathbed, he had a number of officials sentenced to death because he wanted to make sure that when he died, the country was mourning and not celebrating when he died. But when Herod did die, thankfully, the officials were released and the people celebrated. (laughs) He was a bad guy. He was an enemy in this story. And it's one that as we hear this story in Matthew, it's easy to rejoice when you find that Herod is out of the picture. Herod's views of others, his treatment of other human beings, his facade of his faith, and his political and religious alliance with Rome makes him an enemy. He dehumanizes other people. He's way out of line with what God desires and what God intended to do through his people and through the king of his people. You see, when we lack the disruption of God leading magi to Jesus, we can easily become supporters of violence against other human beings, be it immigrants or warring nations or various groups or even individuals in our own families or in our own city. If they are outsiders, then we can easily perceive them as a threat to our position and a threat to our way of life. They're enemies. And if they're enemies, how easy it is to justify harm directly or by withholding some sort of goodness in that relationship. It may not be on the same scale of what Herod did, but our actions against our neighbors grow out of similar desires. Protection, position, safety, well-being, power. If there's any real outsider, if there's any real sort of enemy in this text, right, it's got to be Herod, right? The Magi, these pagans, are miraculously called and led to be by God and be with Jesus, and they're miraculously and safely led away. They are favored by God. But Herod, the Jewish king, the one you would expect to belong, who should know better, is just acting more like the pagan kings around him, controlling through deception, threats, and violence. And if anyone doesn't belong, if anyone should be kept away, it's got to be Herod. But while the presence of Magi in this story is disrupting and unsettling, so is the presence of Herod. You see, what Matthew has chosen to tell us right prior to this story about Herod is he tells us about the birth and the naming of Jesus. And the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, Joshua, which means salvation. The angel tells Joseph, name him Jesus, salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. Will save his people from their sins. And besides Mary and Joseph in the story, who are the first members of his people as we try to unpack what does that mean in Matthew's account? It's Herod. The chief priests and the teachers of the law are mentioned. The first encounter in Matthew's account as he unpacks this phrase, his people, is with those that want Jesus dead. Those that wish him harm. And this isn't true of all of his people, right? Not all wanted Jesus dead, but when Jesus is crucified, 
When the powers of the city and the religious elite sentence him to death, Pilate has inscribed over his head, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. One of the other shocks of this text is that Jesus shows up to save Herod from his sin. He shows up to save the Sanhedrin that will later falsely accuse him. It is and should always be unsettling in the beautiful compassion of God that magi are led and show up and worship him. It should be a constant challenge to our way of living and who we think is in and out, but it is also deeply unsettling because of the compassion of our God that he came into the world to save his people from sin, that he was willing to do so by suffering and dying on the cross. Rather than playing a position of power like the rulers of his day, he takes a position of humility. He is here to save even those we think are on the outside as enemies. He welcomed the outsiders, he brought them salvation, and he lives to continue to bring salvation to his people, to save them from sin, and to lead them ever into deeper lives of worship. We learn from his compassion as he brings Magi to his presence. And we learn from his compassion as he comes to save even Herod and to save all of us from sin. And as we learn from his compassion, we begin to see the disruption of others, right? And the disruption of other human beings in our lives as an opportunity for blessing, an opportunity for joy of the kingdom of God. And as we learn from his compassion, we learn to love even those we believe are enemies. For this is what our God has done for all of us. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.